Well, this morning, I am excited to begin a new sermon series, although technically uh, we're not starting a new one as much as we are continuing an old one. Uh, way back in September of 2020, we began working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, studying characters like Samuel and Saul and David. Uh, and that series lasted a little bit over a year. We concluded 1 Samuel uh, just about uh, the time of Christmas of 2021. Now this morning, I would like to pick up where we left off, starting now in the book of 2 Samuel. Now, of course, originally, 1 and 2 Samuel were written just as, as one book. They were only really divided because, you know, back when you wrote everything on a scroll, the scrolls could only be so big, and, and Samuel had too much of a story, so they had to cut the thing in half, and so we had 1 and 2 Samuel. And that means today for us that as we start in 2 Samuel, it's kind of like we're jumping into the middle of uh, a story, right? We're, like we're joining the middle of a movie that we've already kind of missed the first half of. Uh, and if you're like me, you probably can't even remember what you had for breakfast this morning, let alone what the preacher talked about three years ago. So I certainly understand if some of your memory of, of the characters and the events of 1 Samuel are maybe a little bit fuzzy. Uh, and what's more, I know there's several of you guys who weren't even part of our church way back in 2020, so you probably have no idea who these, these characters are or what we're talking about. So before we jump into 2 Samuel this morning... I want to give you just a really quick recap of 1 Samuel. And to do that, I want to show you the, the Bible Project's overview video of 1 Samuel. You might recall, oh man, that might have been back in the 2020s when we went through, actually every Sunday, we went through a book of the Bible and they gave just a five to seven minute overview of what the book was all about. Uh, they're just so good Clear and concise uh, summaries of the book, very helpful. Uh, so I want to look at 1 Samuel once again, just to kind of refresh our memories. It'll give us the, the big picture of what Samuel is all about and a little bit of what we've talked about thus far. Uh, it won't give us too many of the details, but we'll, we'll kind of get into that as we go along. So if we're ready with that, we will fire up our video. We'll watch our overview of 1 Samuel. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel. There are two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of 1 Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the Promised Land. And there Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters. The prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, and then King Saul, and after that King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. 
Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter 2. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel, at the same time that the Philistines rise to power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant, and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the Ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the god of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on the people. And then the Philistines don't want the ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's trophy. And he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's covenant blessing, which opens up into the next large section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now, Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good-looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king. But he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. And so Saul's downfall begins. As God, at the same time, is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king. It's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king, but the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in the God of Israel. And so this story embodies all of the themes of Hannah's poem. Proud Saul and Goliath are brought low, while humble David is exalted. From here, we watch Saul slowly descend into madness, while David rises to power. 
So David starts working for Saul as a general, and he's winning all of the battles, and he's also winning all of the fame. And so Saul gets jealous, and he starts chasing David around, hunting him, trying to kill him. David's done nothing wrong. And so David simply runs and waits in the wilderness. And here we see David's true character. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He simply trusts that despite Saul's evil, God will raise up a king for his people. What's interesting, too, is that many of the poems of David that you find in the book of Psalms are linked to this very period of his life, and they all express the same attitude of trust. And so this section of the book ends with Saul coming to a grisly death after losing a battle with the Philistines. First Samuel tells some of the most intricate, well-told stories you find anywhere in the Bible. And the characters Saul and David, they're portrayed very realistically. And the author's putting them forward as character studies so that you can find yourself in them. So in Saul's story, we see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. And so he's running in the wilderness, being chased by Saul. David had every reason to think that God had abandoned him, but that's not what he thinks. And so David's story encourages us to trust that despite human evil, God is working out his purposes to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. Excellent. So that's 1 Samuel. That's what we covered about three years ago. And now we're going to start looking through uh, at 2 Samuel. And I realize that this was a very broad overview of uh, Samuel there. Uh, not a lot of specific events and details, a lot of things that we, we didn't cover. But uh, hopefully as we go along, I can kind of fill you, on, uh, fill you in on the necessary details uh, as we start looking at 2 Samuel. Uh, and, and to start with, just before we begin reading in 2 Samuel, let me just summarize what kind of happened in the, the very final chapters of 1 Samuel there. Uh, at this point, as was mentioned, David has been on the run from Saul uh, for years now. Uh, even though God had declared that David would be king, uh, Saul does everything in his power to, to kill David, uh, hunting him down, chasing him all around the countryside. Uh, but God has kept David safe. Uh, and amazingly, despite all of this, uh, David has had this ability just to trust in God. Uh, and even though there were multiple times where David could have taken Saul's life, uh, he's refused to do, do so. He's always left Saul's hands in the fate of God. Uh, God Saul's fate in the hands of God. That's what I should have said. Uh, but now, uh, God has finally brought Saul to an end. Uh, in a battle against their, their arch enemies, the Philistines, the armies of Israel have been defeated, uh, and Saul and his sons have all been killed. Now, of course, David wasn't part of that particular battle, although he was almost obligated to fight on the Philistines' side, uh, believe it or not, since uh, David had actually been living amongst the Philistines for about the last year or so, uh, kind of pretending to be an ally, ally with them uh, as he flees from Saul. Uh, but that's kind of a whole other story we won't get into for today. But for now, let me just start reading through our passage, and, and I'll kind of explain a little bit more as we go along. So reading now in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, after the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag. 
All right, now I'll clarify just a couple things in here. Now, at this point, David does not yet know that Saul has been killed in battle. Uh, David's just returned from his own separate battle, uh, rescuing his family, actually, from uh, some raiders that had attacked his city, uh, Ziklag. That's a, a Philistine city that he had been living in with his men, again, pretending to be their ally as he flees from Saul. Uh, and then as he's uh, preparing for battle, uh, these Amalekite raiders come and they attack his city. He's, he's not there, but they, they pillage his city. They take captive all of his family and the families of his men uh, and head off uh, wherever they were going. Uh, and eventually when David realizes what happens, uh, there's a lot of stuff that went on back there. But eventually he pursues after them, uh, chases them down, uh, and God gives them this great victory. And not one person that was taken captive was missing. Everything was uh, returned safely. Uh, and so now David has just returned from that great victory. He's at home in Ziklag, no doubt assessing the damage and, and trying to figure out what do we do next. And it's at this point that David learns of Saul's death. And we read uh, in verse 2. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from? David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened? David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, Our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, for us, as readers of this story, this is not new information. We actually read about this in, in detail back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31. But for David... This is new and very difficult news for him to hear. Not only is David devastated that, to hear that the armies of Israel have lost the battle against the Philistines and that King Saul has been killed, but I think probably most devastating to him is the death of, Jonathan, or of, of Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, if you remember back from our, our study of 1 Samuel, uh, David and Jonathan had a, an unusually close relationship, especially considering that Jonathan was actually the heir to the throne, but God had promised David that he would be the next king after Saul. And what's more, uh, Jonathan's father, Saul, was actively trying to kill David. But yet, despite all of these circumstances, Jonathan remained absolutely loyal to David through it all. It, it truly was a, a very unique and, and deep uh, friendship shared by these two men. And so this news would have been absolutely devastating to David. And so he says to the messenger in verse 5, he says, How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead? David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy or charioteers or chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and he saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, Who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me, Come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Now, there's a couple things that we want to note in these verses. First of all, you'll notice that this messenger was an Amalekite. And this is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, David had just come back from defeating a band of Amalekites that had attacked his city and taken his family captive. 
Uh, but this was certainly not the first encounter that the Israelites had had with the Amalekites. Uh, the Israelites had been enemies of the Amalekites for, for centuries now already at this point. And in fact, one of the first battles that the Israelites had to fight after coming out of uh, Egypt, uh, coming out as slaves, was this battle with the Amalekites. They had been you know, completely unprovoked. These Amalekites came and, and attacked them. Uh, but led by Joshua, God gave them victory over them. And, and from this point on, Israel would be kind of at war with the Amalekites. In fact, in, in Exodus 17, uh, back when this all happened, uh, we read this. It says, After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder, and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means, The Lord is my banner. He said, They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. And of course, God kept his word. Uh, in fact, actually in the early days of Saul's reign as king, uh, God gave him instructions to attack and, and absolutely eliminate the Amalekites from the, the face of the earth. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel 15, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. All right, so God had determined to, to finally bring the Amalekites to justice for what they had done. But unfortunately, Saul refused to obey God's orders. Now, he, he did fight against the Amalekites and, and, and did a lot of you know, damage to them, but he did not completely destroy them as God had said. And it was this act of obedience or disobedience that actually cost Saul his throne. This is why God determined to remove Saul as king and to replace him with David. And now it seems that this same act of disobedience that had cost Saul his throne actually now cost Saul his life as this Amalekite, whom, whom should have been eliminated earlier, now apparently put Saul to death. And, and I do say apparently, because we can't actually verify that what this Amalekite guy said was true. Did he really kill Saul, or was he just the first guy to kind of come across Saul uh, after he was dead? Because if we look back uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we find a slightly different account of what happened. So I'll read that for you. It says in 1, or in, yeah, in 1 Samuel 31, 4, Saul groaned to his armor bearer, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So by this account, Saul would have already been dead before this Amalekite came on the scene. And there's maybe two possibilities to, to how we can understand this. Uh, one is that the Amalekite was lying about killing Saul, thinking that maybe he'd get a, a reward from David for finally doing away with Saul and, and bringing him his crown and, and his royal armband. Uh, the other option is that maybe he really did kill Saul. Uh, perhaps the armor bearer just thought that Saul was dead when he fell on his sword. And then when this Amalekite came along, he actually finished the job as he described to David. And if that's the case, well, then it really is just a, a tragic irony that Saul's act of disobedience years ago that, that cost him his kingdom now also ultimately cost him his life. And I think that's just a, a real potent warning for us as we consider the consequences of our own sin. I mean, yes, there are our immediate impacts of sin, and, and they are often very significant, 
but sin also has a way of extending its impact years into the future. You know, the choices that we make today can have a tremendous impact on us and others years down the road. You know, Paul reminds us in in Galatians 6, verses uh, 7 and 8, he says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. You know, and that was, that was certainly true in Saul's life, and ultimately it will be true in our life as well. We will harvest what we plant, likely in this life, but certainly in the life to come. Which is why a relationship with Jesus Christ is such uh, a vital thing for us to have. Jesus has taken the ultimate consequences of our sin, the, the consequence of death when he died on the cross. We might still feel the the temporary sting of the many consequences that come from our own sin here in this life. But the eternal consequences of eternal separation from God, that's been taken care of for us by Jesus Christ when he died and rose again from the grave. Through faith and trust in Christ, we can be forgiven. And instead of harvesting death and decay, as Paul puts it, we can harvest abundant, eternal life. It's like Jesus offers to trade us, you know, his reward for living a perfect, sinless life. And he'll exchange that for the consequences of our sinful life. And all we need to do is is to accept that exchange. And if you've never done that, I would just really urge you just to consider doing that today. Uh, Come talk to me after the service or someone else here that you kind of know and trust. We would love to explain to you more about how Christ died uh, for you to take your punishment, to take your consequences so that you can be free from that and and enjoy abundant, everlasting life with Christ. Uh, And so it's, it's the most important decision that you'd ever make. So I really urge you to consider that today. But to get back to our story, uh, when David hears of the defeat of Israel, as well as the death of Saul and and Jonathan, he and all of his men respond by mourning deeply. Uh, Verse 11 says, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the Lord's army and for the nation of Israel, because they had died by the sword that day. Now remember that Saul had been chasing David For years, David and his men trying to execute them as traitors, even though they had been nothing but loyal to Saul. And so it's almost almost a little bit surprising that they would all mourn so deeply over Saul's death. I mean, David's mourning over Jonathan. That's certainly understandable. But it also says pretty clearly here that they mourned and fasted and wept all day, not just for Jonathan, but for Saul as well which is kind of surprising. In fact, you'd almost expect them to, to rejoice a little bit, right? That the one who tried to, to kill them, the one who'd, who'd run them out of their homes and away from their families for years, that guy was now dead, right? This was a, a dawning of a new day for David and his men. With Saul out of the, the way, David had a clear path to the throne. And so this was, this was the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And so you'd kind of expect David and his men to, you know, maybe celebrate a little bit, not to, to mourn the loss of Saul. But I think that just kind of gives us a little bit more insight into the character of David. He really did live out exactly what Jesus would teach almost, you know, a thousand years later. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. 
you know, throughout his life and through all of his interactions with Saul, and, and even now at Saul's death, David completely acted as a child of his heavenly father, showing love, honor, and respect, uh, even for the guy who, who hated him and, and tried to kill him. Now, David didn't do that because Saul was such a nice guy or that he had somehow earned David's respect. No, uh, David treated Saul with love, honor, and respect because he knew that that's what God would want him to do. Now, that's not to say that it was easy for David by any means. I'm sure that it wasn't. But David determined that he was going to do what honored God no matter what, even if that meant truly loving his enemies. And I think that's something that we need to strive for as well. You know, we need to strive to honor God in all that we do, in every circumstance, even if that means giving honor and respect to people that we think probably don't deserve it. You know, I think we all have people in our lives that we might not think of as an enemy per se. That's not very Christian language to have an enemy. But we certainly have people that we find particularly hard to love or respect. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's political leaders that we disagree with or, or people who push agendas that go totally against our beliefs. Maybe it's people, uh, maybe it's like our neighbors who play loud music late into the night or let their dogs leave little presents on our lawn. Maybe it's, maybe it's the coworkers that we have that gossip about us or, or somehow undermine our authority. Maybe it's our parents or our relatives or, or in-laws that just drive us crazy or, or some other person in our past that's hurt us deeply. You know, we all have those kinds of people in our lives. And so I just encourage you, you know, as Proverbs 24, 17 says, don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. Remember, they are still people. Human beings created in the very image of God. And, and despite their, their poor and sometimes their evil choices that they make, they are still people who are dearly loved by God. And, and so I would encourage you to, to follow the example of David and to love your enemies. Love the people that persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Now, it's, it's certainly not easy, but... It is what God would do. In fact, that's what God does every moment of every day. Lamentations 3.22 or three twenty two reminds us, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And isn't that good news for us? You know, when you consider how many times we make choices that kind of put us in the category of, of people that are hard to love, you know, and, and God still loves us anyway, man, that's amazing. And it kind of makes it a little bit easier to love those people, those other guys, doesn't it? You know, when we totally act selfishly or, or we blatantly disobey the expressed will of God and we know it, when we do things to, to hurt the people around us, you think that God would he'd just run out of patience with us, that he'd you know, cancel his forgiveness or, or toss us out and, and have nothing to do with us. Let us suffer in our own consequences, right? But he doesn't do that. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. What a, a good and faithful and gracious God. And so we'll close here this morning. We'll kind of pick up the story again next week. But to close this morning, I just want to encourage you to, to treat those enemies in your life, those people that are hard to love, treat them the same way that God treats you. Let's follow his example and, and show them the same kind of faithful love and mercy to those people that are the hardest to love. Let's love our, our enemies. Let's pray for those 
who persecute us. Because in doing this, we are acting as children of our Heavenly Father. And great is His faithfulness. Dear God, we thank you so much for your great faithfulness, for your incredible love for us despite our own foolish choices, our uh, sinful rebellion against you that comes up often in our lives. But yet, you remain faithful. You continually lavish on us your love and your forgiveness. And I pray that if there's anyone who's never accepted that free gift of forgiveness and life that you offer us through Jesus Christ, that they would make that choice today and they would accept that uh, marvelous gift and we'd be able to, to live in your love. And also I pray, God, as we go into our week, that as you love us, that we would be able to do likewise to the people around us. Even those people that seem so very unlovable, may we recognize that they too are people dearly loved by you. And that because of your great faithfulness to us and your love for us, we can extend that same kind of a love to them as well. May we act as children of our Heavenly Father, God. Uh, we pray all these things in your name, ask you to be with us, to remind us of these things often as we go into our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.